Welcome to Librarians Allowed, an independent podcast presented by the Academic and Special Libraries section of the Library Association of Ireland. I'm your host, Laura Rooney-Farris. So before I introduce my guest, a word on Library Ireland Week, which, if you're listening to this as soon as it goes out, is this week, November 28th to December 3rd. And the theme this year is Libraries Empowering Through Online Access. So there's lots of events taking place in libraries across the country. Um, Check them out on the Library Association of Ireland's website. The Academic and Special Libraries are really excited to be hosting our event for Library Ireland Week, um, which is the Irish premiere of the documentary The Safe House. It's about the British public library system and the threats that they've been facing in the last few years. So we're also going to be lucky enough to be joined by the director of the film, Greta Bellamancina. She'll be available for a Q&A after the film. Tickets are still available, so do book your place now and join us on December 3rd for the premiere. You can find out about booking tickets on the ASL website, which is www.aslibraries.com. So my guest for episode 11 is Louise Farher. Louise is the information specialist for the Health Research Board's Evidence Generation and Knowledge Brokering Unit. It's an interesting title um, for what, as you'll find out in the interview, is very much an evolving role. Um, There's been a lot of talk in the last couple of weeks about the concept of living in a post-truth world and I think there's some definite hints in this interview um, about the ways that information professionals uh, can play a role in safeguarding evidence in a post-truth world um, and some of the emerging routes for information professionals. Um, So it's a very interesting interview. Listen up, I think you'll learn a lot. the information specialist here in the health research board and the the evidence center of the health research board um i am and you have a quite an interesting job title and kind of job functions uh, do you want to kind of start off just telling me a little bit about just your job at the moment and then get into talking about your your library origins the good old days <laughs> yeah, how you got here well the role is quite specific um and it I've been in the HRB now since 2001, but this particular role as information specialist in the Evidence Centre didn't really start until about, it was the summer of 2010. And at the time, the HRB had undergone a bit of a strategic review. And we were repositioning some of the units and changing things around. And up until that point, I had worked as an information specialist in what was then the National Documentation Centre on Drug Use, uh, where we are today. Uh, it has since been renamed the National, the HRB National Drugs Library. At the time, it was decided that the HRB um, would begin this evidence centre with the purpose of conducting evidence reviews um, on behalf of the Department of Health, uh, where we would supply uh, best evidence um, and information on various health research questions for the department uh, with the aim of uh, informing health policy. So it sounds very grand and very, it sounds- There's a definite intention there. Oh, definite intention from the start. And it sounds very linear, of course, Mm -hmm. as as we discovered, the the work isn't as straightforward as, as it sounds sometimes. But yeah, that was that was that was the goal in in um, in two thousand and ten when the unit was set up, and it was a deliberate uh, decision on behalf of the HRB and my line manager at the time to make sure there was an information specialist on the team, and we were a mixed team of various kinds of researchers. We have epidemiologists, social science researchers, social policy researchers, and then myself, an information specialist. Some of us had worked together previously, but some of us hadn't. So it was quite a bit of a, a, a ragtag group of people brought together for this this lofty purpose of informing uh, health policy. And 
Yeah, it was very much a new venture at the time. So we had brought in some help from an agency called the Sachs Institute. I think uh, they're based in Australia. Part of the reason why I'm a little fuzzy on some of this is that it happened just at the time that I went on maternity leave. (laughs) So yeah, recommended uh, what not to do in the future, uh, change roles and and then have to go on maternity leave uh, immediately after. So I actually missed the first year of the setup of the unit, which was probably unfortunate looking back. But at the same time, when I came back, uh, to the unit in 2011 and they had a year of kind of working uh, under their belt and had a f- you know a good idea of what was working and what wasn't working but it w- might have been good actually to maybe <laughs> the, the birth I was yeah. off doing another kind of birth yeah, at the time um, but it was an interesting time uh, for the HRB and and for, for for all of us in the unit and I think yeah looking back it it probably wasn't as clear to ourselves at the department what we were embarking on. Mm. Like I said, we thought it was a very linear process, um, but the actual day-to-day um, process of engaging with researchers and policymakers to sit down and decide on a research question, how long it's going to take to do, uh, all of that, it turned out to be just a more, more difficult process, I think, than we imagined. But it was, like I said, it was quite deliberate from my line manager's point of view that we kept an information specialist on the team uh, so my my job then when I came back off maternity leave was to try and establish that role more firmly because obviously they had gone ahead without me for the first year. And yeah, so it's been f- five, six years now since then and uh, trying to establish a process uh, for our work because we're not doing systematic reviews. Mm. Uh, what we're doing is a, a faster kind of review that necessarily has to take shortcuts mm. and yet has to be to a high standard and we have to be able to stand over. And that's been a very difficult process to try and nail down, really, yeah. um, because it's not established in the literature at the moment how you do an evidence review or a rapid review. These kinds of review types aren't defined. Mm. There's no agreement, as we discovered when we went looking for other guidelines. And it's actually really just an emerging topic at the moment in the literature. Mm. And one of the advantages, I think, of having the ICML EHIL conference in 2017 in Dublin uh, was uh, that I was able to review a lot of the abstracts that came in. And I was delighted to see a lot of health librarians addressing this issue of review types. Mm. How do you search for various review types when you're not doing a systematic review? Because in a way, um, I found that doing systematic reviews almost seemed easier because you had a defined Cochrane yeah. protocol if you were doing a Cochrane review. Um, and basically the rule is search for everything, mm. look for everything, include everything, and then screen out. But when you're under time pressure and you have to take shortcuts, and then you have to stand over those shortcuts, mm. uh, suddenly it can put the information specialist librarian in a bit of a tough situation, tough position to stand over the decisions you make on a review at a very early stage. Yeah. Uh, so I found it a bit nerve-wracking once we kind of got up and running. Mm. Um, it just seemed to me that a lot of the decision-making as part of my role was was kind of high stakes, more high stakes than I'd ever been led to believe would be the case in library school back in the day. Yeah, So because it is quite, you know, it feels from what you're saying like um, you're a little bit ahead of the curve because this type of role is sort of emerging out of the ether now and it's coming together mm. and I think a lot of organisations who work with evidence in different types of ways are beginning to realise the the advantage of having somebody like an information specialist on the team and the role that they can play. But it is still, it's quite embryonic still. Um, I think so. And I mean, you'll see that come out in the literature. Where you, and I just I, I printed off a paper just literally this morning and it was, it was the librarian's role in conducting rapid reviews. Mm. So it's definitely, it's an emerging I'd say it's, it's, it's an emerging role for us, but it's probably been there for quite a while, just people haven't really yeah. w- written it up in the literature. It's always been a, a part of what we do, but I think it's becoming much more strongly defined and articulated now and becoming a role in itself. It is, and it's interesting. A while back now, we had to commission out a review. We just didn't have the capacity in-house mm-hmm. at the time, the time capacity to conduct the review. And again, we were quite specific when we put the tender out that we wanted a research team that consisted of an information specialist. Mm. Uh, And that's become um, a point of principle in here now for reviews that are commissioned out. So it's obvious to me that within the HRB, within our section, 
that information specialist role is, is clear. It is actually clearly defined as, as a member of the team, what that role encompasses and how that role supports the entire review. Um, and that, I suppose that's, it, it's helpful for me to see my role clearly spelled out, that it's mm. not just um, an add-on or it's not something that's brought in at the beginning of the review where I'm told, oh, we just need you to go off and do the search. Yeah. the search like it's some kind of very specific uh, kind of magic entity um, give them the results and then sort of then disappear um. it's, and it's very hard to do that in isolation of all the other variables within you know, the, the search question you kind of need to know everything else that's going on to be able to understand what to include not to include direction to, to do your searches in. Absolutely and I mean my involvement tends to be from the very beginning our first meetings with the stakeholders mm-hmm. because they're often not always clear about what their research question is. They may have a, a, a broad question in mind and it does take a few meetings. It's the classic reference interview yeah. um, to tease out what it is exactly they're looking for, what they hope this question will answer because sometimes the question they have in mind doesn't always answer what they think it will. So there's quite a, I suppose there's an onus on us as researchers and information specialists, whoever's on that team, uh, to try and tease as much out of your stakeholders as possible or your your, your customers uh, to try and figure out what is it really they want to find out. Yeah, there's a bit of reverse engineering going on in terms of really getting getting them to upfront. Absolutely. Figure out what it is they want at the end of this and then and the trying best to approach to get that. Trying to tease out, is it really a research question? Um, in the old-fashioned sense of a question where you test a hypothesis. Mm. Uh, Because a lot of times maybe it's not a research question, maybe it's actually a request for additional information. Mm. And I suppose what we've discovered over time is what our stakeholders often want is not research evidence, but it is best practice information or what is happening in other countries um, in terms of a specific process. I suppose uh, one of the examples I could give you, we did um, an evidence review on the subject of personal budgets for people who have disabilities. Because um, people with disabilities in other countries have the option of getting a personal budget and they decide how to spend their health care money or their health and social care money, what kinds of services they want themselves, rather than going to a centre and having the services delivered. So part of our review was to look at other countries and see how are personal budgets dealt with in other countries? Are they in legislation? Are they in guidelines? This is not the kind of information you find in journal articles necessarily. It might be as well, but it's often legislation. Mm. It is often kind of clinical or practical guidelines written up on websites for departments of health or social care. And I suppose we learned the hard way that a lot of the information we're looking for isn't in databases and isn't in journal articles. You might get a lead in that way and find out maybe particular terminology you need to use, the different language for a particular uh, for a particular thing like personal budgets has its own word in Dutch, which I I, I can write. I can't say it. (laughs) Um, But it took a lot of time to get to that stage where, you know, we realized actually it's okay for us not to do all of our searches just in bibliographic databases, Mm. that we might need to look beyond PubMed or Medline, and that we need some kind of process for doing this where we can be clear to our peer reviewers that we did all the appropriate kinds of searching in the appropriate places, but then we looked beyond that, uh, looked in websites, uh, and looked in official websites, and tried to come up with the best kind of information. But we've no template for using that kind of information Mm. we've no template now for bringing that in and synthesizing it the way you would with um, data from a randomized control trial from us for a systematic review so yeah it sounds terrible in a way we're we're kind of still thinking through how we do our work six years later it's very much an evolving uh, process of doing the reviews very much dependent on the review topic so we've had some reviews that really lent themselves to the more old-fashioned systematic review style. Yeah. Um, and then some of them that were so different and required information that you would never find in journal articles. Mm. Um, and I suppose the challenge for me sometimes is to take a step back and say, OK, I can't search for this the way I've been trained to search for this. Mm. I can't sit down and come up with my nice 
Pico search strategy um, because I don't have a database I can look to. I need to find other sources outside of my comfort zone, outside of my knowledge zone. Um, what did I know about personal budgets before we started doing that evidence review? Nothing. But I still had to kind of come to terms with the literature around disability, disability payments and how they're managed. We've since moved on now to a review on uh, drug-related debt and how do you reduce drug-related debt and drug-related crime. Completely different area. Mm. New sources for us to look up and some of it's peer-reviewed literature and some of it is in guidelines and websites and just areas that I wouldn't yeah. typically look. So. And it's hard to work having been <coughs> used to the, the process of your traditional systematic review and working with, as health librarians, you get very used to the evaluation of a kind of information in terms of the hierarchy of information and we train students on how to evaluate according yes. to the hierarchy of... Oh, the hierarchy of evidence would dismiss yeah, so and, much yes, of what we so look at. So much of what you need, I think, kind of comes back to some of the, you know, the, the, the core principles for librarians. It's who is your user? Yes. What, what is it that they actually need? Yes, and I suppose that's I suppose the beauty of the evidence reviews and I suppose <coughs> our ability to be flexible in here and how we work. I, um, as long as we're explicit about the decisions we make on what kinds of evidence to include and how we've quality appraised those, mm. I think gives us the ability then to give this information uh, to our stakeholders and customers with confidence that we've conducted the best review that we can with the tools we have and that we're explicit about where we think there might be shortcomings or where we think the evidence is difficult to measure or can't be measured. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I suppose it's focus, It's got me to focus on quality appraisal in a way that I probably wouldn't have in the past because we would have had the simple guidelines of the hierarchy of evidence yeah. and it was quite easy just to checklist and say well there's no RCTs in this so we don't have to look so at it but if we didn't if we only looked at RCTs now in our evidence reviews I think we would have um, zero publications at this stage yeah I find that quite a lot it's information I work with it's that there aren't RCTs so you just have to discount yes looking for them but I think in a way I suppose it's chosen evolution as well my work isn't it isn't usually clinical health questions and I think if you're willing to look into health services research and health research into policy, then you realise that it's very difficult to maintain that very high level of evidence, that standard of RCTs only, mm. um, or very well conduct conducted uh, review. You need to look beyond that sometimes. Um, so we're lucky that we get a mix of questions that allow us to, I suppose, practice our more traditional uh, systematic review approach but also allow us then maybe to be a bit more experimental and look at approaches like realist reviews, realist synthesis, mm -hmm. which one of my researchers now is very much uh, championing and uh, teaching us as he goes along. Um, it's an area that I'm not, I suppose I don't feel well developed in um, and looking forward to going to a few conferences where I can learn more about, well, how do I do realist synthesis? How do I search for review that's going to be a realist synthesis mm -hmm. and what's the best way for me to support the researchers. So uh, yeah, I don't have all the answers on, on a lot of the questions we get and I don't even have all the answers on the approaches a lot of times you're trying to to learn as you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, like a lot of people in the, uh, or a lot of services in, in health at the moment, you know, we're understaffed and overworked. Yeah. So we haven't had the time that we'd like, I think, to read more into what we're doing. Um, but we're very lucky this year in HRB we brought in some interns mm -hmm. and we've, we've been lucky to have one intern work with us for six months this year and next year we'll have two interns both working a six month period so as well as being able to train them in in the kind of work we're doing and I can emphasise the information specialist part of it which is great um, it also gives us just a little bit more flexibility with time to be able, be able to take a half day every two weeks to sit down and just read read the literature of what's going on with evidence reviews at the moment what's what's the latest um, review protocol or has anybody you know actually managed to come up with the magic bullet for us but yeah, it's, it makes for busy work, but it's very, it's very interesting, um, and it's it's quite varied. Yeah, and it definitely sounds like it's literally evolving day to day. So just to take a maybe a step back, uh. how did, what was your kind of first step into um, the library and information? Profession? 
profession? How did you end up? How did I end, I end up where I am? What, what made you take this? <laughs> step in this direction well to, to, to quote every other librarian um, yeah I did not take the there is no traditional route into librarianship yeah very much discovered there isn't one and uh, I had been living in Boston at the time and um, had finished my undergraduate degree and had studied in the, in the United States wanted to stay in the US and went to Boston I was looking for administrative type work at the time I'd finished an undergraduate degree in about Bo- um, started out doing biology and realised that I did not want to be a lab rat Mm -hmm. (laughs) at all. Having gone through my entire leaving cert thinking, I want to work in a lab, Mm -hmm. I realised really bench bench work was not my cup of tea and switched completely to an arts degree and philosophy. But graduated very much uh, with no idea what to do next. I thought about doing a PhD in art history. But I couldn't fund it myself and the US college is quite expensive. So now I went to Boston uh, with some friends and stayed working within the university environment in medical school admissions of all things. And I was trying to keep my eye out for something a bit more interesting and I saw that Harvard University was hiring people to work uh, making microfilm down in the basement of Widener Library. And I thought, well, it's more interesting than medical school admissions. And it's, it had dawned on me as I looked up all these library jobs, um, oh, you need a qualification for this. Mm. And I just thought, oh, well, maybe that's actually something I could try. Mm. And after a few months of working in the basement of Widener making microfilm, I mean, I knew that's not a career path. Mm. <laughs> uh, it was a means to an end. Uh, Harvard was a good place to work, and they had um, a small scholarship fund through the Harvard Union. Mm. And I was lucky to be living in Boston, where there were actually two library schools. Uh, Simmons University was based, or Simmons College based there. Mm-hmm. They have a very well-renowned library program. And the University of Rhode Island was offering uh, courses through the University of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. So I said, I'll dip my toe in the water and try a cataloging class with the University of Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. And straight to the hard stuff. Go straight to cataloging. Straight to cataloging. I loved it. I loved it. I heard somebody giving out on one of these podcasts about cataloging. That was probably me. <laughs> I suppose I loved it because it showed me that there was there was actually there was a system in place and there was a, a logic behind this system. And of course, this was um, the mid 90s, I suppose, as personal computer use was exploding and the Internet was exploding in the US. And I was starting to use the Internet, but I could see, gosh, these databases are brilliant because all this cataloging information was going into one big database. Mm. And I just thought, oh, there's a logic and a structure here. There's a theory behind this, you know, and it's not just, I don't know, some old system came up, some old system that somebody came up with. Yeah. Um, information could be controlled logically, and I really, really liked that idea. Yeah, it is quite nice when that when you suddenly see the key to organising. Yeah. What previously looks like. And I suppose, uh, as an undergrad. Unorganisable. But it, yeah, it wasn't, or, and I realised as an undergrad as well, we had been assigned a research paper, and I'd started using the what were then print indexes, mm. uh, the cutting edge, the CD-ROM had just been invented, and we got to look these up, and you know there was a mechanism to look up this database with these words for my paper, these keywords, find articles about my topic, and then either look them up on the shelf or interlibrary loan them. Mm. And I just thought, you know, there's this whole universe of information that's organised by all these people. So it just, yeah, that really, really attracted me. So I signed up to Simmons proper mm-hmm. and uh, to do my master's in library studies, um, which was, yeah, and, and did it while I was working. So I had started at Simmons while I was still working, ploughing away in the basement, mm-hmm. making microfilm uh, of these dreadful medical textbooks. <laughs> And it was, it was interesting, at the time Harvard was starting a digital contents pilot project, mm-hmm. starting to scan old medical textbooks. So probably be in one of the first places to begin doing type of work? I think they were, and it was, it was under a National Endowment for the Humanities Fund in the mm-hmm. States. And part of my job then was to scan the documents, these old textbooks, and write up the catalogue record for them. And it was only a small pilot project for them to see, was it worth kind of scanning their entire collection, mm-hmm. their historic collection? It's interesting to look back from this vantage point now to think of someone dipping a toe in that. Mm. Is this something that's even worth doing? Yes, and of course it it was. um, And of course then Google got in on that. Mm. (laughs) A lot of the the texts we were scanning were really old, kind of uh, early 20th century textbooks Mm. that probably didn't have a huge archival merit and yet needed to be recorded somewhere. Mm. 
So, I, yeah, I stayed, I did uh, three courses at, in Simmons, international and comparative librarianship, mm -hmm. photographic archives, and uh, reference management, which was probably one of the best courses I ever did. Mm -hmm. Very old-fashioned reference management and reference interview kind of skills and reference sources. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of things that we did back then are probably out of date now, but it was... I felt like we learned a lot on how to, I won't say interrogate, it's the wrong word, it sounds interrogate your user, give yeah. me your answer, but really how to tease out from, from um, your users what kind of information they wanted. Mm. And it gave me a sense of the kinds of resources that you could have at your fingertips, not just the internet, you know, that there are actually very good print resources still mm. to this day that I would refer back to. But for personal reasons, I needed to come back to Ireland at that point mm. and... Uh, decided um, I couldn't transfer over to UCD directly so I started out at UCD from scratch right. which was okay because I got to kind of do more courses. Mm. Um, and how different did you find the experience having done, having studied library courses in the US and then coming to UCD? Was there a <laughs> difference in the sort of the ethos of the way that the courses were presented or the structure and the content? I think so. I think UCD in a way seemed, well, there, yeah, the UCD seemed pitched very differently. At the time, you had to be really a full-time student to go. There was yeah. very little option for doing a part-time yeah, program, and particularly for people who were working. Yeah. Um, and I, I only knew one person in UCD who was, they were doing the, the top-up masters to, to yeah. I think, if I recall correctly, to bring their diploma up to a masters. But really, it was very difficult to work and go to UCD. Where Simmons was aimed at people who were working full time, a lot of Saturday courses and evening courses, as well as students who were full time. So I just yeah, I found they were coming from two different places. Mm. Simmons was quite academic but also quite practical. Where I found I suppose UCD a little more just academic focused, and at the time there wasn't nearly the same engagement between the library school and the library itself. Mm. And there was that mysterious corridor where there was, in theory, there was a door into the library, mm. <laughs> but it was never open. And I think that's changed a huge amount from what I can see now yeah. from the Facebook, um, the SLIP uh, community um, and mm. from the, the UCD iSchool page on Facebook. There seems to be a lot more interaction now, which I think is essential. Yeah. Um, it seems to be much more practically focused as well. Yeah, and I suppose there's always that fear that li librarians will be seen as kind of practical only and not have the academic um, mm. aspect. Um, but I, I, th I don't think you need to have one or the other. I think you really need a healthy combination of both. Yeah, but I really enjoyed the UCD course. Um, I felt like I got a lot out of it, particularly doing the Masters. I felt mm. the Research Methods course um, was really important. I can't imagine now looking back not doing research methods, not doing the masters. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I could work in the research environment I do now if I didn't have that kind of grounding, yeah. if I wasn't clear about methods and the various different kinds of methods and approaches to doing research. Um, so in that sense, I did feel it was useful, but it probably didn't uh, serve me for another few years in, on, uh, in my mm -hmm. career. Um, we certainly didn't do a lot of the practical we did management, but we didn't do a lot around financial management or planning. Mm. Th a lot of the subjects I think people would expect to do now, and that really it'd be very difficult to run a library service if you don't have a good hands on yeah. of budget I control. Think a lot of people still say that though about their, you know, the, the thing that they yeah they miss having not done in library school, or the thing that they wish they had done more of is often the financial yeah. management and the. the the of management. Which is a pity because I think particularly a place like UCD that has the Smurfit Business School, they have, mm. you know, there's definitely the people there to kind of try and supplement um, the course with some of those courses. I think sometimes we're afraid of, of kind of business elements mm. and it's, I think it's really, it's the wrong approach because we work in a competitive environment, even if you're in an academic setting, maybe especially if you're in an academic setting, you know, we're competing for funds no matter what agency we're, we're based mm. in. We, we need to market ourselves and make our presence known uh, and appreciated. So to me, the, uh, anything that can help you with those kinds of skills, help you develop them if you don't have them naturally. Mm -hmm. And I think librarianship does attract people who aren't natural salespeople, myself yeah. included. I think we do tend to draw in the introverts. We do, and you know, it's not, uh, particularly the, the current climate, the climate for the last eight years, 
uh, it's quite easy for introverts just to get overlooked and shut down and you know you see that a lot in health libraries we're, we're not the only ones so I think having those skills and having good communication skills not being afraid to get up and speak in front of a room full of your peers whatever your organization is being able to have a conversation with your CEO um, you know it's it, they sound like such basic skills and yet we don't emphasize a lot of these communications policy strategic planning and management financial yeah. management skills I think we're getting a lot better at it yeah. and continue to be impressed at the new waves of new professionals coming through who are extremely savvy with their ability to sort of show their relevance and show how information specialists can be kind of inserted into various different um, parts of organizations and be able to justify and illustrate impact Absolutely, and I think it's probably the, the the biggest problem, particularly in the public sector, is because we haven't been able to hire people for so long. Mm. You know, for some of us, it's been an eight-year gap, and um, being able to hire new people—that's a long time uh, for people to get comfortable in positions, um, get very familiar with their roles. Uh, really, what we all need is, I think, is an injection of young blood. And I say that now yeah. as realizing I'm kind of mid-career librarian—that dreaded kind of <laughs> phrase—but. Um, we have so much to learn from our, our, I won't say even younger counterparts, because they're not all necessarily younger, but they're, they're newer. Yeah, but new, new to the profession, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the best thing that could happen for any of us is to have some new hires. Um, I think especially in health. I feel like health yeah, especially has... Because health has, realistically, it has had probably one of the toughest times in the last eight years. I know it's been difficult for... Oh, I think for across the board, but health libraries really have suffered in the last two years. I think so, and I'm, I'm, I'm jealous of my academic counterparts. I see some fabulous jobs being advertised now in the universities, yeah, and I just, just think... look at them, kind of, with your salivating. I'm like, I'd love to be a young professional now, or a new mm. professional, you know, going for those jobs. Um, I'm conscious I wouldn't get some of those jobs. Um, I'm keep competing. I would be competing against really... Um, well-prepared individuals who have a different mindset mm-hmm. um, real 21st century individuals were probably the cusp of, of, the, of the last century I sound like an old fogey now <laughs> but I hear you I feel the same way no I'm, I'm, I've been impressed now a lot of the the library association career development group mm. have they've put on some really good events good ideas from people and I just think oh I'm still learning yeah there's, there's so much I still don't know about being a, a good information specialist, a good librarian. So I've, I have a lot to learn from from these savvy new people. So I keep showing up at these events, kind of going, well, I'm not really a new professional, but I'm going to New Professionals Day. Um, I'm, I'm, I want to re- be able to reinvent myself yeah. in that sense. I don't know when you ever feel like you're not. I mean, it only occurred to me recently <laughs> that... I still felt quite new to the profession and then I realised that I've actually been in, been in it for over 10 years and been <laughs> working in it you know, and been qualified for yes. you know, more than seven. So I stopped counting. Yeah. I, th- I think the, th- the trick but is but to... I still <laughs> don't feel like I've been in the profession for that long. No, my, um, my main piece of advice to people is to stop looking at their LinkedIn profile where it tells you how long you've been in your current job. If you've been there for a while... Um, I've been lucky that I was able to change roles in here, which is mm. great. Um, I'm not sure that I would have been able to stay the same role for for much longer so when you started here what what was the role initially the role was initially an information specialist Mm -hmm. in this new uh this new library this national documentation center on drug use which is kind of a bit of a torturous name Mm -hmm. nobody ever understood really what it was but even the the term it's a european sounding title information specialist even today there aren't that many people whose title is information specialist we're, we're kind of moving more to away from being termed librarians and and more towards information managers or information professionals well it's it's interesting because my, my senior colleague at the time brian galvin would have hired me mm. for that role and he was quite explicit when he was drawing up the job that he, his role was to be an information senior information specialist mm. and the role i got was to be an information specialist mm. and it was very much it was a virtual library we were meant to be setting up it wasn't meant to be simply a physical uh, repository for books and at the time, this was 2001, it was before before repositories had been invented, even yeah. though they were they were out there really in some guise or another. But he was very much looking, I suppose, away from the traditional library role and thinking very much in terms of electronic resources, management of electronic resources, dealing with licensing to a certain extent, but online resources and how to market those, manage them and promote them. 
Uh, so at the time, we ended up having to build our own bespoke uh, repository. Mm. Uh, if we'd waited 10 years, of course, there would have been a ton of them on the market. And it was quite interesting at the time because you know I wasn't a software developer. And again, it's one of the things they don't teach you in library school is how to be a yeah. software developer. One that, that is very much needed that isn't but one thing they did cover very well in UCD was uh, advanced database management systems. Mm. Uh, it was probably the hardest course in there for a lot of us. And we were in there, I think, with some of the, possibly some other students, possibly some of the undergraduate computer science classes, I think. Mm. It wasn't just offered uh, to the library and information students. But it was, it was about how to build databases properly, um, the back end of databases. And it was really, really useful because again, if you can understand how information is structured in a database, well then you can interrogate your database. Yeah. And really if you want to be able to search databases, whether it's PubMed or Medline or whatever, you know, you, need, you really need to understand how your back end of your database is actually structured and functioning, I think, to be able to search it properly. Mm. So yeah, we ended up having to build our own online repository, which is really just a database, mm. um, and learn by doing, having sitting, sit down, have discussions with software engineers, trying to explain, well, this is what we want it to look like. And they were having to explain to us, like, what are the functionalities then you have in the back end of your system mm. to make all of this work? And it was, again, a real revelation, you know, that this, this information needs to be structured and organized and even t talking to software engineers mm -hmm. about developing library products, yeah, they come at it in a very different way. And I think they tend to learn a lot from the way yes. that we approach the structure of information because they just see, you know, they just see it as a, well, it's a just software engineering problem. Yes. And, you know, well, we were trying to think about the information and flow. We, yeah, we're thinking about the... What does our user how, want? Yeah, how a user interrogates the system. Yeah. And they don't necessarily approach it like that. So I think it's always quite interesting getting information professionals and um, software engineers together. Yes. And they sort of assume that they know what we want until we sit down and talk to them. Yeah. And they realise, <laughs> actually, I, I, you know, I know how to build this, but I don't know how to structure it in the way that you want it. No, and I suppose we weren't sure to a certain extent because we were building this for this new customer. Mm -hmm. And it was specifically going to be a repository of information on drug and alcohol addiction and research in Ireland. So a very specific, narrow topic. Um, it was going to be on the web and we weren't, you know, we knew a fair bit about building websites, but this was more than just going to be a website. Mm. So we were learning, uh, that's my, my career profile is going to be learning on the job, but we were learning <laughs> on the job as we were doing this. And it took two iterations really to get it to where we wanted it mm. to be. and. We were on the verge of looking at a third review at one stage, and then we realised, you know, there is now off-the-shelf packages mm. that will do what we've spent the last six or seven years painstakingly trying to build. Mm. And at the time, then we realised we could use um, there was I think three different packages: DSpace and ePrints, mm. and also the oh the name not um oh the one Linus is built on. Biomed Central one. Sorry, I've just the name escapes me. Mm. Sorry, Linus, but yeah, the the the, the basis for for the Linus database uh, repository. But there was an option for us then to stop kind of reinventing the wheel and trying to build our own system and use a proper um, repository management system that had the support behind it mm. of a dedicated team and wasn't kind of go, wasn't going to go out of business anytime soon, and it wasn't reliant on. I suppose us trying to stay up to date with web development when we should have been off doing more kind yeah, of that promotion. Yeah, is incredibly time consuming. It you, is. You do, if you're going to go down that route, you need to have someone just dedicated to that yeah. and that alone. And at the time we would have had, um, we'd two members of staff in the National Documentation Centre on drug use and we took on a third member. Mm -hmm. But really the more interesting part of the work w at that stage was to get beyond just database development and obviously go out and promote the tool. Um, which is, is it's more fulfilling. You get to actually meet and talk with your customers. Mm. And that was, I suppose that, that opened up a new avenue for us because that started to bring us into the librarian as teacher role mm. as well as librarian as software developer. And it's work, a lot of uh, work I would have done with Mary Dunn and with Brian Galvin on trying to 
package the work we do here and go out to the universities and to the various different courses that um, were taking place at the time to support um, not just researchers but also um, practitioners studying uh, in uh, addiction studies uh, or practitioners studying kind of social care uh, or social work and we would go out and do either a half day or a full day information session with them on the kinds of resources we had here in the library specifically on, on drug and alcohol addiction but go beyond just these are our books and databases and our our uh, journal collection but also this is the current state of research in Ireland on drug and alcohol research. These are the kinds of uh, data you could access. This is prevalence data. Explain to them what prevalence data is and how it's measured and what it's not. Um, explain to them what kind of drug treatment information they could find in Ireland and how they could interrogate that themselves. So yeah, it, it became almost like a little mini introduction to inf um, kind of information on addiction studies. Mm. Um, and very much it seems like it's something that has been emerging in the last five years or so, but again, it seems like you were quite ahead of ahead of the curve in librarians as outreach. And outreach workers, yes. Yeah, going, taking your product outside of the traditional library environment and just going straight to the consumer. Well, it made sense, and particularly because we're such a small, unknown library. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, you know, we were trying to survive going into the recession. You know, you, you want to justify your existence and obviously keep your visitor numbers up and look for new audience, um, knowing that they're out there but may not know of your existence. Um, but it, it made sense because it was, we were a national, albeit small, but national library with a national remit. Um, but we knew that there was potential audience around the country that just weren't going to come up to Dublin to meet us. Mm. So we would have done outreach um, to the University of Limerick. They had a, an addiction programme. Mm. And we would have gone down to their centres in Limerick. Uh, they had a centre up in Letter Kenny. Yes. And we've gone up to that a few years in a row. And we've gone out to UCD to the social policy students. We've been down to Sally Noggin to one of the... Um, the courses through the oh again the name escapes me one of the institutes down in Sally Noggin so we've aimed it both at undergraduate students but also students doing post leaving cert courses maybe getting an introduction into alcohol and addiction studies maybe with a view to going into um, support services but it just it made sense um, sometimes people won't come to the library or can't and it's not that much more difficult for us to go out um, and try and do a half day or a day long package and it gave us a chance to promote the HRB as well because mm -hmm. the HRB is a, d a data collector for um, drug and alcohol uh, treatment uh, data. So it gave us an opportunity to promote their work and explain what they do. And I suppose within our unit show that we were integral to the information systems here in HRB, not mm -hmm. just the library. Yeah, that we were just a separate entity. Yeah, so that we're actually part of what was then um, the Alcohol and Drug Research Unit. So definitely I'm, I'm all for looking for any kind of opportunity to engage with whoever your stakeholder is, you know, people or policy makers, uh, whether that's going to conferences. Uh, going to conferences you wouldn't normally go to, and uh, maybe trying to present at conferences you wouldn't normally present at. Mm -hmm. um, our evidence centre is going to present at the Sphere Conference, which is really aimed at, I suppose, postdocs, new postdocs, and health services researchers. But we're going to, um, the evidence centre is going to do its own presentation there uh, this January. And the information specialist has a slot as part of the group presentation. You know, we're going to explain the kind of work we're doing now in the evidence centre. Um, and I get to, to do a little bit about how. My, my searching works as part of the evidence reviews and the kinds of work I do then with the team beyond the simple search. So yeah, I think you have to push yourself outside your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what was it, fear the, feel the fear and do, uh, do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and to what extent do you yes. feel, it sounds like this is very much kind of the ethos of the organisation is to kind of embrace the, the role of the information specialist and have it Yes. Have you involved <laughs> in everything that you're doing? There, there's very much a clear kind of symbiotic relationship between everything the, the overall organisation does and the work that you individually in um, the information. There services. is, I suppose. We do. Like, do you feel is that something that has always been? I'm encouraged, not sure. Th like that. 
I think it has, but I'm not sure they had much of a choice. I suppose we embedded mm. ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm getting at, the, the embeddedness. And do you become, you know, do you kind of come in as an embedded librarian or do you sort of evolve into one? I think you, for the most part, at least in Ireland at the moment, you, mm. you, you evolve into one if you want to. Yeah. Um, but I, I think you do have to. I think in a way, possibly in small organisations like HRB, um, the, the role of a separate librarian, I think, is possibly in danger. I, I don't know how sustainable that is in the long term. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure we should want that. I, I think being able to be embedded, without losing yourself, obviously, but you know, to maintain your, your information skills and demonstrate by doing its importance in day-to-day -day health services work, um, I think that's vitally important. It is easy to lose yourself. It would be very easy for me to become just, I suppose, research support mm. um, and a bit of a jack of all trades. So you do have to obviously counter and kind of watch against that. Um, but I think if I were to stay down in the library and not engage with, you know, all the different projects I do in HRB, I don't think, I think A, people wouldn't see me as often. Yeah. And, and that is actually, visibility is really important. It sounds so obvious. Um, I wouldn't be visible. And I think I would, I would lose relevance. If, if I'm sharing an office with my researchers, um, you know, it's easier for them to approach me, ask me a yeah. question, even if it's just a throwaway question, a quick question about finding something on EndNote or using our other reference management tools. Um, we have a tool in here called Epi Reviewer that we, we pay for. And it takes reference management to, to another level for doing evidence reviews. It allows, allows you to do more than just manage the references for your bibliography. Uh, it allows you to manage them and tag them and code them to answer your research questions. And you know, part of my role is to manage our Epi Reviewer license mm -hmm. and train people in on it and organise additional training if needed. You know, but we'll often just get quick ad hoc questions, and it's you know, for me to be physically separated from my research team means I walk down the hall or down the stairs, and I just I don't think that kind of separation bodes well for teamwork. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of this embedded kind of roles, you are really part of a team yet you're maintaining your own skill set. And I don't think it's a hard sell. You know, my researchers, I keep calling them my researchers, um, they maintain their skill set. Yeah. You know, and one of, one of our social science researchers now has just been off in, at University of Oxford doing a one-week uh, training session on doing realist reviews and realist synthesis mm -hmm. because that's his area. So, you know, the, he brings that to the team. Our epidemiologists bring their approach to the team and I bring the information um, skills to the team and I think if you if you sell it like that mm. um, it makes perfect sense yeah you know I'm a res researcher with one specific kind of skill set well more than one but yeah. one specific no, one so than that, that's exactly what most researchers would be yeah. used to working in a team or particularly in healthcare environments where they're used to kind of multidisciplinary teams where yeah. each individual brings a very different perspective and skill set and kind of professional um, practice with I them. I think so. Um, and it overall aids the eventual end result. Well, it does because we learn a lot from each other and, you know, I'm still, I keep saying I'm still learning. I think I'll be <laughs> the champion of lifelong learning. Mm -hmm. uh, the kind of skills I learned from my research team, I feel like I can bring back then to my, my fellow health librarians mm. um, and try and encourage us as, as a health library subset of the greater kind of library uh, community to be more involved in conducting good quality research. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're a big fan of um, talking about evidence-based Practice an evidence-based librarianship. I think it's it's harder for us to practice it in reality. Yeah, yeah. And constrained by lack of resources, really. Lack of resources sometimes, and lack of skills. Maybe I think sometimes we need to really treat research as something that we do too, um, but stay up to date with not just library practice then, but also library research mm -hmm. and methods, and be clear if we're conducting pieces of of research that we can stand over the methodology we're using. Mm -hmm maybe not always fall back on doing case studies, try and push the boat and do something yeah. a little more technically well, difficult. I think the librarians have really been punching well above their weight and kind of really showing their 
their research skills in the last few years in terms of stepping outside of just doing um, studies and qu producing quite a lot of high evidence um, research work? I think we're trying. Um, I see great work coming out of the academic librarians at the moment mm -hmm. on ethno eth ethnography. ethnography I'm amazed yeah. at some of the research they're doing. I would love us to be able to do some of that kind of research, mm. particularly in yeah, hospital libraries. I think it would might give us a better sense of, particularly in health and in hospital libraries and research agencies, you know, who our customer is. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of this work doesn't get done at the moment because we're, you know, under-resourced and just don't have the time to think about it. Um, it would be fantastic now, as the HSE is changing its health library organisation, if maybe there was maybe there's more scope for them in the future to look at how they organise health libraries across a national kind of health system. Mm. Um, I heard a rumour that a new he national health services librarian has been appointed. Mm. Um, so I'd, I'm dying to see what they will come out with in a few years' time. And will they try and take an evidence-based approach to the new kinds of services they might design? Um, will they look at you know, doing more than just a case study, like I said, doing maybe ethnographic research on health practitioners, how they use health libraries, talking to policymakers, um, and doing maybe more focus groups with senior policymakers? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it will be dictated by you know, the approach of what is seen as priority within um, the health service and the approaches that they're taking. Yeah, well, this, the scope in the health service is also to look beyond our traditional um, our traditional customers, I think, in Ireland particularly, but actually I see this in our European colleagues as well, we're af possibly afraid of consumer health mm. and getting involved with yeah, non-professionals. That. We haven't, and I think there's a lot of scope for us um, to remain relevant and to, to demonstrate that relevance by directly dealing with consumers. Mm -hmm. But I think it's an area a lot of us are uncomfortable with, or maybe just don't have experience of. Obviously, that's maybe more relevant for you. Yeah. Um, but we, we, we see a divide in Irish health librarianship between kind of people who deal with consumers and people who deal with professionals. Yeah. And I think it's time to maybe break that down a little bit. There's less of a difference think so. I think sometimes it's just a matter of confidence and I think we're clear speaking kind of the language of, of health professionals with health professionals and I think we're concerned sometimes that we can't translate that to consumers. Yeah. But, you know, if we're not careful, you know, there's other agencies out there who, who are already doing some of this work. You know, public libraries, you know, interact with, with people every day and must provide uh, quite a lot of health information and are already doing bibliotherapy kinds of programs. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of scope for us to have more partnership with our public library colleagues. Um, places like the Citizen Information Centre, groups like NALA that look at health information literacy. We don't look at health information literacy mm. uh, and we could do a lot more on that front or at least be more involved with organisations that are and be clear that we have an interest in this too. But um, I suppose again, resources, time, you know, that's what it, com it comes down to. Um, and often making, making the case to those yes. Hire us than those who are kind of the heads of our organisations. That this is actually part of our remit. It's part of our remit. Yes. It's something that's worth us investing our time in. Um, I think uh, <laughs> we need uh, full-time advocates uh, to work for yes, us in health do. libraries. <laughs> but that, that kind of comes up quite a lot. Yeah. Discussing what we what we need to be doing and the direction we need to be shifting in and the, the need for. I can see that. But having said that, there's great people working in health libraries uh, doing so much. I, I, I think if um, policymakers were to look at the value for money they have gotten from the health library staff over the last eight to ten years, you know, for what people are doing versus how they're resourced, uh, punching above our weight doesn't even come close to it. So I'm always impressed at my colleagues. Um, I feel like we're fairly well resourced here in the HRB and we, we shouldn't gripe at all. Uh, I know colleagues that get a lot less in terms of CPD budgets um, and abilities to go to conferences and yet they're there presenting, giving papers, yeah. uh, developing new products and new approaches to delivering service. So it's, it's definitely, it's, it's a good area to be involved in. I'm just hoping now the next five years, maybe as we come out of recession, 
we can we can see a bit more funding and resourcing strategic resourcing mm-hmm. of health libraries yeah. that's um, you mentioned uh, the e-health yes <laughs> that's another spring to your bow that you've been god hard at work in yes. the last few months Har- on the, the organising committee um, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, what's on the agenda for the e-health ICML conference in June yeah, so we have a humongous agenda. We're still trying to narrow it down. Um, myself and my, my partner in crime, uh, Eva Lawton, uh, Eva heads up the International Programme Committee, uh, who's responsible for deciding on the scientific content. Uh, and I'm on that committee, but I'm also heading up the local organising committee that really does, it's the housework, making sure people have somewhere to go and have a lunch to eat and have a venue and all of that. But we spent uh, three days last week with our International Programme team some of them came to Dublin and we reviewed well over, I think it was 207 abstracts of content, a combination of uh, posters, papers, continuing education courses and interactive workshops. And our big problem is that we still have too much content, which is a fabulous uh, way to, a position yeah, to be in. But it's, it's difficult to be in that position. Yeah, well, we, had to, we, have to, we haven't done it yet. We still have to figure out now. Um, what sessions we can offer in parallel but for some reason uh, we've noticed a revisiting on the subject of systematic reviews mm. supporting reviews and doing systematic reviews that's come up quite yeah, a bit, there has been a bit of a resurgence it's back in vogue yeah. again it's funny how things seem to kind of come in and out of fashion or yes they, they go away for a little while and then they come back well they're but back <laughs> they're back but interestingly and i'm del- delighted to see this just from my own point of view um there's an emphasis also on different review types. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen papers um, and, and education workshops coming up on the area of supporting different review types. So I'm delighted because it means there's a few of these sessions I can go to that will help me in my job. Um, and other areas, uh, value and impact is coming up as an uh, emerging area, which is so topical for us. And we're seeing a lot of content coming from the UK because the UK are taking a very strategic approach now, particularly in England. They have the Knowledge for Healthcare program mm-hmm. and a Knowledge for Healthcare toolkit. And they're really approaching their libraries as a national health library resource in England. So there's a lot, I think, to learn from our UK, uh, particularly our English ca- uh, counterparts. So hopefully in the next month, we should have the program finalized and we have some interesting keynote speakers. Yeah. We're bringing over Michelle Craft from the US, um, the crafty librarian. Has she spoken in, in Ireland before? She has not. Yeah. I don't think she's spoken in Europe, so I'm, I'm delighted to get her over. Um, I wanted a hospital librarian as one of our keynotes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a lot of good academics as well, but I wanted a hospital librarian, somebody who knows as with the difficulties, the nuts and bolts and day-to-day difficulties and challenges uh, and rewards of working in a hospital library. And because she's often made some bold statements about you know libraries that can't stay relevant, maybe maybe they need to close. Yeah. Uh, so she's not afraid, I suppose, to address the difficult issues. So I'm hoping she can uh, help us address some difficult issues, but also give us some pointers mm-hmm. for where European and particularly Irish health hospital libraries can go in the future. Uh, we've got some interesting content. Uh, my own CEO, uh, Graeme Love, will speak, I hope, um, on, well, we haven't given his topic yet, but mm-hmm. it'll, be on, it'll be on the area of research. Um, and I'm hoping to steer him towards uh, information specialist supported research. Mm-hmm. Um, we've Richard Corbridge taking a technology approach. Yeah, that's very interesting. But we, again, we'd like to get him to to link in with where health librarians um, are important within the HSE, within the health information infrastructure, not just yeah. not just um, e health in terms of electronic patient data, but to think about the li- larger kind of health information environment, including yeah. database resources. Yeah electronic uh, health information. Yeah, there's a huge scope there for... There is, and we really need to sit down now with... professionals to move into that area. There is, and I, I see people doing it. I, I've seen some posts now in HICWA mm. and other health information agencies that really have lent themselves to, to, to library skills and, and new librarians. Um, but I do think it takes a bit of thinking outside the box for us and also a knowledge of information standards, technical information standards, and maybe going beyond the information standards that we would typically look at in health health library information. Mm -hmm. 
I think they're, they're bigger asks maybe for, for professionals, mid-professionals like myself. Uh, there's, I think, the whole new skill set that we'd have to look to learn. Yeah, and it's, and it's sort of, it's a ground that's constantly shifting. It is. You're very much, the honest is on you if you work in that area, to be constantly keeping up to date with regulations and legislation that is continually changing. It is, and sometimes I think those kinds of positions can end up being very technical mm. um, in a way that maybe, I always feel like libraries are a combination of, of the technical and maybe the arts. You yeah. know, we're, we're not in the clear science field, but we're not in clear kind of arts humanities, but we're a nice bridge between the two. Mm. Um, but there certainly is a, a subset of librarians who yeah. are very much have an aptitude in that, in that direction. And place to, to take on that kind of role. And I hope we're attracting those. I hope mm, we're not I losing so, them yeah. to computer science or some of the more kind of non-library degrees. Because I can see sometimes people can see, you know, maybe a library degree is kind of a one-way path only into libraries. Um, I think there's an onus on, on us professionals in, in positions at the moment to show people that really what you can do with this job is make it what you want to, to a yeah. certain extent, if you have that desire. You know, you can go into more technical roles or you can stay in very kind of health research roles or go into the very consumer oriented roles mm. um, but I suppose people will find their own path their own comfort zone and I think we are starting to see that very much particularly mm -hmm. with the, the, the new professionals coming out that they are sort of carving their own oh they are carving their own way in, through the profession they are and I think like when I see a lot of the new roles now um, in, in scholarly communication particularly mm. and also research support offices and um, the kinds of roles that are blending in the kind of role the librarian does supporting a repository uh, supporting data management and mm. um, which is a whole sub skill that some of us have to some level but maybe not enough really to to, to do as a full-time job and mm. um, it's great to see places like UCD now um, with a data repository and supporting the yeah. role of data repository within the library. Yeah, that was a very good move to see them um, kind of taking direction. Yes. Management of data. Well, interestingly, Health Research Board now is offering, you can ignore the, the printer there in the background, it has a life of its own. Um, Health Research Board is supporting a new initiative now in January where they're running um, two days of training courses on data management. And they've offered um, some of those positions to librarians. So we've been able to go out to a lot of the people uh, in the library community and offer them specific places on two days of pretty intensive. One Day one is aimed at, I suppose, practitioners, library practitioners already doing some uh, research data management. But it's, a, it's a, an introduction to everything you wanted to know, but we're afraid to ask. And then day two is aimed at more senior positions and policymakers. Um, but I'm delighted to see HRB take on, I suppose, starting out with an open access point of view, but moving now into open access and data management. Mm -hmm. um, we're starting to be involved in that area in a way that HRB wouldn't have traditionally. Yeah. And it seems to be the natural evolution of as um, open access policies kind of mature and the, the nuts and bolts of how you actually manage the process of publishing and open access data seems to be the thing yes sort of the byproduct of of that process getting up and running now and we're now in a position where we need to factor in what yeah. happens to the data well it is and it's it's kind of in a way in ireland we we sorted out publications open access to publications as a national policy we sorted it out quite early mm. um i think was it was it 2010 or 2012 i think it was 2012 with the open access statement um, and again, HRB was quite involved in that. And yeah. it's one of the things that we do try to do in here is, is be involved. This is for the library staff. We try and be involved um, across the different units. Um, obviously, myself and Brian are not based in the research um, funding part of HRB, but it was the research funding part of HRB that was actually making the decisions on open access policy. And we were able to be involved kind of at a cross unit level with these uh, with the, that team to help inform the policy um, and initially to encourage us to have a policy and uh, get the policy written um, and then help HRB support the National Open Access Committee to get set up mm -hmm. um, and now do work with them to help them with the approach to open data 
So there's definitely scope within people's organisations to be involved in other parts of your organisation. It may not seem like an obvious fit sometimes, but I find, particularly in Ireland, a lot of decisions are made sometimes in a, in a different part of your organisation if you're not communicating with those people. Yeah. You might even miss that there's a policy happening mm-hmm. that you're interested in. You don't know about it until it's about to come and there's nothing you can do to Absolutely. insert yourself into the process. <laughs> so I think, um, I suppose this is kind of library as salesperson. Um, mm. Well, really, librarian is communicator and networker. You know, talk to the people in your organisation. Even if it's just the sports and social committee, it's a good way of getting to know what other people do in their day-to-day job. And you can often see that there's a library connection there or there's something you could work with people on. Um, Even if it's just your internal website committee or your document management policy committee, you know, being involved with different groups, um, it makes it easier to talk to people about bigger policy decisions if you already know them, if you've had a cup of coffee with them and talked to them about other things. Um, And again, that's not something, you know, that they teach you in university at any course, at any level at all. That really... definitely something that you have to learn. And it's it's not about schmoozing people. It is about Mm. building relationships. Uh, Going back to our our conversation before we started recording, Mm. you know, everything we do is built around uh, relationships with people. And the ability, I think, to be open, communicative uh, with your non-library colleagues is actually really essential. Yeah. Um, to show it just shows them the kind of person that you are. Um, you're a, you're a librarian who's approachable. You're a librarian who's interested in topics that they don't think are to do with the library, mm-hmm. and that maybe you can speak authoritatively on. So. It's a bit like having your elevator speech ready mm. um, on lots of different topics. Yeah. Um, so if you catch somebody important in the elevator, um, that you can you can kind of <laughs> I won't say bore them to death, but you can talk to them about their er- their their subject area. Yeah, and where it overlaps mm, with your knowledge. Absolutely. I think I've bored our, our <laughs> listeners now too much. No, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, let, we'll let you go with that. Um, oh. Thanks so much for. Thank you. And sharing your extensive wisdom. Oh, I, I, I really appreciate being asked. Uh, this is this is a uh, gosh, I'm, I'm starting to blush here now, people. <laughs> okay. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again to Louise for being such a great interviewee and for sharing an insight into her really interesting work. Um, A reminder now that booking for the ASL 2017 conference, The Sociable Librarian, is now live. Um, I know we say it every year, but we have got a seriously impressive lineup for the 2017 conference, including as one of our keynote speakers, Scott Bonner, director of the Ferguson Municipal Public Library. He's definitely um, one not to be missed. um, So do please book. Um, We'd also like very much to thank our sponsors for the ASL 2017 conference. They are IEEE, Dynex, Dawson Books, Taylor and Francis, Dublin Business School and Interleaf Technology. So thank you very much to them for helping to make ASL 2017 a reality. Um, If you want to catch our early bird discount rate, you'll need to be quick about it. It's expiring on November uh, November 30th. So if you go to www.aslibraries.com, you can take advantage of that discount before it's gone. Librarians Allowed is produced by Laura Rooney Ferris. Music and editing are by Michael Ferris. Yeah.